Revelation 6, 1-17 Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature, saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Picking up in chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is the word of the Lord. Eli Wiesel was a Holocaust survivor who died in 2016 and for many years was a professor of uh, humanities at New York or Boston University and lived in New York for some time as well. And in his book, Night, he writes this, human suffering anywhere concerns men and women everywhere. Human suffering anywhere concerns men and women everywhere. And as we move forward in the book of Revelation this morning, I think we can frame that question a little bit differently to orient ourselves to what we are supposed to learn from this part of the Bible. Does human suffering anywhere concern God? Does human suffering in the world make a difference in God's own mind or not? You know, on the answer to that question, so much depends, not least of which the way that we live our lives before the face of God, the the way that we relate to God, the way that we think about God. And I think that we find help here in a way to answer that question from Revelation 6 and 7. Now, last week we saw in Revelation 4 and 5 that God is on his throne, right? He is in the heavenly throne room. We called it last week the control tower of the universe. And the main idea of those two chapters was that God is the center of the universe and that God is worthy of the worship of everything in the universe that is not God, including you and me. And we also saw Jesus pictured there as both a lion and a lamb, as the one who is worthy to execute or to fulfill God's eternal plan for the world, his plan for history. And Revelation presents that symbolically for us in Jesus opening up the scroll, okay? Now, in chapter 6 and 7, what we read is Jesus, the lamb, unsealing each of these seven seals. You know, that's a wax that would have sealed an ancient scroll, which was a letter or a book. Jesus is unsealing this scroll that no one else in all the universe was worthy to unseal and to open. And this is the first of a series of cycles in the book of Revelation that all parallel each other. And also, by the way, this is where Revelation begins to get a little bit weirder. (laughs) I actually walk into this with a little bit of fear and trepidation. It's a little bit more difficult. And so I want us to remember what we said the very first week we started Revelation a few weeks ago. Two main principles of interpretation, okay? Remember these. First, this is symbolic literature, not literal literature. (laughs) So we should read it as such. And secondly, these visions are not just about the distant future, the days right before God returns in Jesus, but they're also, in a lot of ways, about the present. So if you keep those two things in mind throughout the series, it will aid your understanding of this book, okay? So what are the opening of these seals that Marianne read to us, all seven of them, what is that all about? 
Well, the seals being opened represents Jesus unfolding and administering God's eternal and sovereign plan for the world, for history. As the seals are opened, what we see are, in many ways, judgments of God. We see calamities, we see disasters, we see disease, we see suffering and persecution of God's people. And one major point that we can take right away is that these things will typify the last days. And by last days, the New Testament means the entire era between the first and the second coming of Jesus. That's in part what Revelation is referring to when it uses the word last days. When that phrase is used, it's referring to our day. Not just like the last seven years or the last however many years before Jesus returns, but the entire period between the first and second coming of Jesus. And so, What I want to do this morning is summarize these two chapters like this, and then we'll look at it in three successive parts. But here's the main idea of Revelation 6 and 7. God will sovereignly bring his people through the suffering of life into his new world. That's what it's about. God will sovereignly bring his people through the suffering of life into his new world. Let's look at that in three parts. First, God is sovereign over all suffering. That's the first point. Second, God will seal his people and bring them through all suffering. And third, God will return and end all suffering. Okay, so first, God is sovereign over all suffering. Open your Bible if you have them and look at the first eight verses of chapter six. Here we see the opening of the first four seals. And as they're opened, we see, well, this is, you know, you might have heard this language, the four riders of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, of Revelation, and each horse is a different color. Now, this image isn't something that John just made up. It flows directly out of the Old Testament. In Zechariah, one of the Old Testament prophets, chapter 6, we see four horsemen with the same exact colors, more or less. And so, again, John is drawing on Old Testament prophetic literature to retell the vision that Jesus shows him. Remember last week we said that oftentimes it's Revelation is sort of like a, a movie being made out of a book where the director will take some artistic liberties and kind of give his own spin of the book. That's in many ways what's going on here again this morning in Revelation. Now let me tell you this. This is not to be interpreted as, you know, one day four literal horses um, will show up literally at the end of history. This is symbolic, just as it was in Zechariah. Now, John, in his vision, saw what he says he saw. But what he saw is a symbol of how history is going to unfold and ultimately of how Jesus is going to return. So these things are symbolically representing what's going to happen between the first and second comings of Jesus. That is, they represent our day. So what do they represent? Let's look at it. The colors of the horses give us clues. The first horse, verse 2, is white, we see, and he represents conquest. That's what John tells us. That probably means spiritual conquest. That is, evil forces attempting to deceive and persecute Christians. The horse is white, most likely, because the Bible says in other places that the devil oftentimes disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. So whiteness is a deceptive idea here, and the white horse is representative of the deceit and conquest and persecution of God's people. The second horse is red. We see that in verses 3 and 4. And the red symbolizes bloodshed and war. The third horse is black. 
and he represents famine. That's what's happening there in verse 6. I know that's a very strange verse, but basically what it means is that food is going to cost a lot of money because it is scarce. In other words, there's a famine. And then the fourth horse in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6 represents, we read, death. He's pale because death causes people to lose their skin coloration, right? So the four horsemen symbolize the suffering and evil that many will experience in the world. Notice that John writes in verse 8 that a fourth of the earth has, these people, these horsemen have authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts. So what that means is that these calamities, these evil things, do not destroy everything and everyone but that they have a major impact on a lot of people. So practically, verses 1 through 8 teach that in our age, there will be deception, conquests, wars, famines, and death. Does that sound about right? Sounds about right. That's what happens in the world. That's the way things go until Jesus comes back. Jesus has died and he's been raised. We saw that in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 5. And now he controls the flow of history. And as he controls the flow of history, he uses these sorts of really bad things to further his own sovereign purposes. So what are Jesus' purposes then in using these sorts of things, death and sickness and wars? Well, it's important to get that there's a dual purpose. We'll talk more about this as we continue in Revelation. Let me just put it this way for now. These things that happen in the world are both acts of judgment by God on evil and acts of sanctification or purifying for God's people. So when bad things happen, God is in control of those bad things. And those bad things are happening both in an act of judgment against the evil of the world, and as a means of making holy and pure through suffering the people of God. So the main point of these first few verses is simply this. God is sovereign. He is in control of suffering and evil in the world. And suffering has a purpose and direction given to it by God. Remember, it's Jesus who is opening these seals, implying that Jesus is in control of what is happening. Jesus is overseeing what is happening. They're coming from the heavenly throne of God. God is in control of these terrible evil forces of conquest and deception and war and sickness and even death. Are you okay with that? Let's just think about this for a second, okay? This is one of the hardest things to understand and accept about Christianity. So we, we want to be a place where we answer and think about hard questions and we welcome doubts. And for me personally, just to be honest with you, and for a lot of people I know in my life that aren't followers of Jesus, the problem of suffering and evil is the biggest defeater of Christianity. It's hard for people to accept Christianity because of the reality of suffering and evil in the world. And yet this text and other texts in the Bible indicate very clearly that God is actually in control, not the cause of, but he oversees suffering and evil and even uses it for good. So that's a hard thing to get. I have a lot of friends and a lot of family members that reject Christianity in part because of this exact idea. Maybe that's where you are this morning. 
And if you are there this morning, we're glad that you're being honest. This is a hard question, and we want to engage in discussion about these sorts of things with you. So let me just say this, okay? Here's one thing to get. The problem of evil is not just a problem for Christians. I hope you can at least admit that. Everyone, no matter their faith background or their worldview, has to deal with the problem of evil. We can all agree that there's something that is not right with this world. There's something that's not right with us on the inside. The question is, why are things not right? Now, the problem of evil from a Christian's perspective is that if God is good, then surely he wouldn't allow these evil things to happen. If God is both good and powerful, either he's not really good because evil happens, or he's not powerful enough to overcome evil because evil happens. And so Christians have to really think about that and wrestle with that. But so do those who aren't Christians. You know, really, you have three options when it comes to thinking about the reality of suffering and evil. Either suffering and evil is random. That is, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just going to happen. But if suffering and evil in the world is random, what that does to you and me and others is really give us the idea that this world is just about survival of the fittest. And, and what it really actually also does is make us more and more selfish because if suffering is random, then one of our primary objectives into life is to look out for our own, to look out for ourselves and not want to risk to com- have compassion and concern for others. So if suffering is random, it doesn't actually allow us to live with very hopeful lives. That's one option. Another option is that suffering is retributive. A, me- a better way to put this is that karma rules, Right? This is only true in professional sports, by the way. Karma rules in professional sports, except for the Patriots. They keep getting away with being evil. But anyways, um, if suffering is, is retributive, then when bad things happen, it's because you did something really bad a few years ago or whatever, or maybe even a former life, and you're reincarnated as an insect in this life because you were so bad in the last, last life. God is out to get you, and he's going to zap you with lightning or he's going to send a war into your country, or there's going to be a famine in your land because of X or Y or Z event or action that you've performed in the past. Suffering is, is really vindictive. If that's true, then really we're going to either be very proud people because we can say, hey, the reason I'm not suffering is I'm a lot better than you. Or we're going to be super despondent and we're going to hate God. We're going to say the reason I'm suffering is because I'm never going to be good enough, and I've been really bad in the past, and God hates me. So if suffering is retributive, it doesn't lead to much hope. So you can have random suffering, you can have retributive suffering, but thirdly, you can have redemptive suffering. And that's the view of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And if suffering is redemptive, it's still bad, but it is ultimately intended by a sovereign God to form us into the people we were created to be. And so we can potentially have hope, even in the midst of suffering. Listen, that is a big part of the message of the Bible. It's a big part of the message of Revelation. Andrea Dilly has written a really helpful book called um, Faith and Other Flat Tires, Searching for God on the Road to Doubt. And she tells her own story in that book. She was raised Um, by medical, Christian medical missionaries in the African country of Kenya. And even as a little girl, she was exposed to far more death and darkness than most people in Western countries ever see in their lives. 
And by the time she was a teenager, she says that she began to question God's goodness. And by the time she was in her 20s, she had rejected Christianity altogether. And what drove her away from Christianity was her anger at God over suffering and perceived injustice, the problem of evil, like we've been speaking about. But one night, she says, in her mid-twenties, she was having a discussion with a young man about the existence of God on her university campus, and he was telling her that all morality was subjective, you know, giving those normal arguments, and you can't, she found herself thinking, if that's true, then you can't really condemn, say, Hitler. You can't really condemn any evil at all, really. And she was actually taking the first step back to faith. It's very interesting. And she says later on in the book, she concludes like this, quote, When people ask me what drove me out of the doors of the church and what brought me back, my answer to both questions is the same. I left the church in part because I was mad at God about human suffering. And I came back to church because of that same struggle. I realized I couldn't even talk about suffering and evil without standing inside of a theistic framework. That is, without standing inside of a world that God exists in. In a world where suffering is random, a parentless orphan in Nairobi can only be explained in terms of survival of the fittest. We're all just animals slumming it in a godless world, fighting for space and resources. To talk about justice, you have to talk about objective morality. And to talk about objective morality, you have to talk about God. That's actually a very helpful way to think about it, in my opinion, and I hope it's helpful to you as well. So the point is, God is sovereign over suffering, and only because God is sovereign over suffering can individuals actually have hope in the midst of suffering. That's what the first four seals are about. So secondly, let's look at this. Not only will God be sovereign over suffering, but secondly, God will seal his people and bring them through all suffering. And this point is made in chapter 7. So look there. Chapter 7, by the way, is an interlude or a parenthesis. It does not chronologically follow after chapter 6. And one of the reasons we know that is because the end of chapter 6, which we'll get to in a minute, is probably, almost certainly, describing the second coming of Jesus. And then in chapter 7, we see stuff that's happening that's bad still, right? So chapter 7 is not chronologically after chapter 6. You can't read Revelation in a wooden and chronological order and make sense of it. So what is happening here? What we're seeing in chapter 7 is that God protects his people in the suffering and in the pain of the world by sealing them. And this chapter is split into two parts, and they both make the same point from different perspectives. In verses 1 through 8, we read that four angels hold back the four winds so that they might not destroy everything, verse 1. Those four angels likely are the same as the four horsemen, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, God restrains the evil and the suffering in the world so that everyone is not destroyed by it. In particular, so that his people are protected, okay? And that's why we read that he seals, verse 3, He seals the name of God on the foreheads of his people. And those whom he seals are described there as the 144,000. Now, remember last time we saw that 12 is one of the most symbolic and important numbers in Revelation. 12 in Hebrew literature represents wholeness or completion. And so what we see here is 12 times 12,000, I think. 
Some of you check that for me. 12 times 12,000 equals 144,000. So what we see then is that this is saying all of the people of God, the whole people of God, the complete people of God descended from the ancient people of Israel are going to be sealed, verse 3, as God's servants so that in the midst of a world full of suffering and pain, they will be cared for, brought through, and protected. And then in verses 9 through 14, we see really the same point from a different view. Here we read about a multitude that no one can number. They're in verse 9. And they're in heaven crying out to God in worship. And then we read that these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation, verse 14. Now again, tribulation does not refer to some intensive period of persecution right before Jesus returns. Tribulation rather refers to the entire period between the first and second coming of Jesus. So here again we see that God will bring his people through suffering and evil into his eternal rest and eternal home. So the point of chapter 7 is simply this. Not only is God sovereign over all suffering in the world, but God is actually with his people as they experience and are pained by suffering in the world. And God will take us through it to our eternal reward and home. So how then does God do that? How does God seal his people? Well, the seal is the Holy Spirit. The seal is the Holy Spirit himself. Um, a couple of other places in the New Testament make this clear. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, God has put his seal on us and given us his spirit, the seal, in our hearts as a guarantee. And Paul again in Ephesians 1, we were sealed by or with the promised Holy Spirit. So God secures us in the midst of evil and suffering by dwelling within us in the person of his Holy Spirit. I remember uh, last year, um, I dropped my kids off at our local neighborhood school for the first time. They were in kindergarten and first grade. And, uh, you know, the way this particular school works is that you go through this big car line and you drop your kids off and they go in the doors and the doors are closed and you just drive off. And so day one, a five-year-old, my six-year-old, you know, Ainsley's backpack is as big as she is. She walks in, first time ever, and I'm like, oh, can I go in with you at least? Like, I want to walk you to your classroom. And they're like, no, you may not enter. Um, Perish all who enter here, right? And um, I remember thinking, man, I wish I could be with them as they go through this suffering, which, let's admit, school stinks and suffering. Um, And... uh, In that moment, I had to kind of remember, you know what? I can't go with them into this, but God is with them. The Holy Spirit is with them. You know, all of us are limited. None of us can really take care of ourselves. Can you you admit that? And for sure, none of us can really take care of our loved ones. We can't go with them everywhere. We can't protect them. We can do our best. We can obviously set up boundaries and help. You know, you know what I'm saying. We can't fully ensure their safety and provision, however. But God can. And God does through the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what chapter 7 of Revelation is all about. God doesn't just control suffering. You know, he's not the dad that sort of kicks you to the curb while the car's still rolling and says, have a good day in school, <laughs> right? He's with you. He's with you. And the person of the Holy Spirit, 
all the time, even when things are bad. You know, Jesus said it's to our advantage that he goes away. Because then the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will come. So the sealing ministry of the Spirit is essential for any of us to make it through life. You need to hear that, friends. Right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is with you. Right now, he is praying for the areas in your life where you're weak, where you're struggling, where you're turning aside to the right or to the left in rebellion. Right now, he is granting to us a supernatural and abiding hope. Do you know that? Do you know the presence and power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God in your life? He has sealed us. His presence empowers us to trust and to hope and to wait in the middle of hard times. It's one of my favorite things about being a Christian. So we see that God will seal his people with the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the suffering of life. And then thirdly, we see that God will return and end all suffering. So jump back to the second part of chapter 6 for me. The opening of the seals 5 through 7 teach that God is going to come back and end all suffering. Look at verse 9. The fifth seal is opened and a loud voice, one of the four living creatures says come and um, Jesus shows John the martyrs. A martyr is one who has been killed in this world because they profess the name of Jesus Christ. They are under the altar. That's a symbol of God protecting them. And they're crying out, how long? So just as a side note, for those of you that have had loved ones who have died and gone to be with Jesus in heaven, you might wonder, what are they doing up there? Well, part of what they're doing is asking God, how long? How long until you will fulfill what you've promised? How long until you make this world right again? How long until you return and execute justice and make the world new? So just like we're waiting, in a sense, they've been perfected. They're living before the presence of God. They're without sin, but they're also waiting. That's what the fifth seal shows us. And then in the sixth and the seventh seals, we see God acting upon that promise. God answering the cry of how long? Verses 12 through 17 of chapter 6, that's classic language for the second coming of Jesus. It's what we call apocalyptic language. And it's very similar to the language Jesus himself uses when he teaches on the Mount of Olives in chapters like Matthew 24 and Mark 13. If you go back and read that, you'll see similar things like stars falling from heaven and the sun becoming black, etc. Those are all ways that apocalyptic literature describes the final return of Jesus. So now this vision is moving us forward into the future return of Christ. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, we see the Lamb open the seventh seal. You still with me? He opens the seventh seal and we read that there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. What is that all about? Well, it's the silence of awe before God's final and perfect judgment of this world. And that comes from the Old Testament as well. For example, Habakkuk, a prophet, chapter 2, says this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Zechariah, chapter 2, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So the silence at the seventh seal occurs because what John is seeing is a picture of the day when God will appear on the world stage in the person of King Jesus. Again, his awesome appearance is the central reality of the book of Revelation. And as the book progresses, we see more progressive and fuller and beautiful depictions of the second coming. But this is the first one. 
and revelation. So Jesus will one day return and make all things new. He will execute perfect righteousness and judgment. He will bring shalom. The things in this world that are broken will be pieced back together by his sovereign and good and all-powerful hand. Remember Weisel's question or statement at the beginning of the sermon. Human suffering anywhere concerns men and women everywhere. And we asked, can that be said of God? You know, sadly, Weisel believed it could not. Later in the book, Night, he wrote, Never shall I forget those moments. He's referring here to the concentration camp at Auschwitz. Never can I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dream to ashes. Yet, I think that we see something different in Revelation. We see a vision that will not murder our soul and our God and turn our dreams to ashes. We see a vision, rather, that gives us hope. It gives hope for those that cry out, how long? What is making you cry out, how long? Whatever it is, God sees. God hears. God remembers. God cares. And God will act. Are you crying out because of death? Are you crying out because of depression? Are you crying out because of violence? Are you crying out because many in our world have no home? Are you crying out because you're alone? Are you crying out because you're confused? Are you crying out because you're ashamed? Because you're guilty? Listen, the gospel tells us that those who run to Jesus and rest in Jesus' death and life for them will also know the day, one day, when that same Jesus comes back and, and shelters us with his presence, as we read in verse 15 of chapter 7. One day we will hunger no more. One day we will thirst no more. One day the sun shall not strike us nor any scorching heat because the lamb is in the midst of his throne and he will be our shepherd. He will guide us to springs of living water. He will wipe away every tear. Whatever it is in your life right now that brings tears to your eyes or whatever it is in your life right now that you're trying to push so deep inside and bury with so much dirt that you don't have to think about it, will one day be made new? Will one day be done away with? Will one day be righted in a way that we can only begin to imagine now? That's the message of Revelation. The seals mean that God is in control. God is over all the bad things that happen in this life, but one day God will return and end it. If you can't hope in that, then you're not really going to understand hope at all. Because all other things that we place our hope in will ultimately fail. So when suffering and evil cause you to cry out, how long? Believe and know that Jesus hears your cry. Just as he hears the martyrs at the heavenly throne, Jesus will answer. So wait and hope.